We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 194. Our guest today is absolutely amazing. She's the founder and owner of Mulatto Meadows, which is an equestrian business that expands the accessibility of riding and horsemanship to communities historically excluded from the equestrian world. She busts her butt to make this happen for so many people and is super passionate about introducing horsemanship and riding to youth of color and economically disenfranchised populations. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today, Brianna Noble. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. You know, life is never bad when you're sitting on a horse's back. So I feel blessed as holy heck to be actually doing this podcast from my horse's back as I'm checking fence lines for the morning. Literally, that is so amazing. I love it. That's how it should be for the equestrian podcast, don't you think? (laughs) Yeah. You know what? Can we make this a new rule and be like, if you're (laughs) going to be on this podcast, you have to do it from horseback. Yes. I love that. I think think we need to make that a thing. (laughs) I dig it. I dig it. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I would love, I can't wait to hear about all the things that you're doing right now, but I would first like to rewind and talk a little bit about how you first kind of found yourself in the horse world. Yeah, well, um, my big sister is to thank for that. So she's nine years older than me. And it's so funny because she actually was the one that was really passionate about horses. And Mm. I ended up becoming a professional horsewoman. And now she's a San Francisco police officer. So we do a lot of collaborations now, but as we were children, um, my parents didn't have money for her to ride or even for childcare for me. So I, during the summertime when we were out of school, I was my sister's responsibility and my sister was in the barn. So guess where Brianna was in the barn. And I actually kind of sort of hated it because, um, when living in the Bay and being in Oakland, the barns are in the hills, you know, and like the rich people part of Oakland. So it used to take us like two hours on the bus every single day. And then we had this huge hill and it was like a 45 minute hike up this stupid hill. So I like, I hated it so much, but we'd get up there and, you know, um, my sister would work for her lessons. And of course, being a little kid in a barn, you're never allowed to just like sit down. So that means I was working Mm -hmm. in the barn too. And, you know, when I got to see my sister jumping and everything like that, I was just like, oh my God, that's like the coolest thing ever. I want to do that. So um, I got to start learning to ride too. And I distinctly remember, I don't know if I actually remember the the actual day or if I'm just remembering a photo that I've got to see over and over of me sitting on this pony and the pony's name was Pony with a bunch of the pony club kids that um, were there at the barn. And I got to sit on the the horse for the first time. And I just remember like screaming my head off and getting in so much trouble when they tried to take me off. Cause I was like, no, I do not want off the pony. It is my pony and nobody shall ever remove me. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Um, from there, I mean, did your sister continue to ride? I, I have a similar situation. My older sister, who's six years older, um, had been riding and that is what got me into it too. Um, but did she continue to ride? What did that kind of look like for her? And at what point were you kind of like, 
I am really into this. Like I want to make sure that this is a part of my life forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, I went up to through the ranks in pony club, you know, I didn't actually have any money, so I couldn't really get higher than my D's cause I never had a horse to ride that yeah, was yeah. good enough to jump really that big. So, um, you know, my sister, she was a lot older than me. So she went out through um, college and she actually had an off the track thoroughbred. And, you know, she used to sort of catch ride at a bunch of different barns and show facilities and stuff. So she rode up through college. And the funny thing is, is I'll never, you know, forget thinking that I was like pretty good at some point. I was probably like 10 or something like that. And I went out um, while she was in college to ride that thorough off the track thoroughbred that she had. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this, my was my, this was my first, this was my first time like sitting on a horse that like, I really didn't have business sitting on. Mm-hmm. And my sister's like, yeah, Brianna, just like go cantering around. Cause she was all excited. And we're at this big show barn in Nor- NorCal. There's huge like fences everywhere. And I was cool. It was great. And then the mayor took off with me. And mm-hmm. you know, that takeoff <laughs> with thoroughbreds where you're like oh, yeah. half halt. And they're like, <laughs> that means faster. Let me girl. (laughs) And so I'm just going faster and faster around this arena. And you know, you get tired more and more tired. Oh yeah. And um, I'll never forget her tossing a book. I fly onto her neck and then she like dodges and jumps. And next thing you know, I'm underneath this, this Philly's neck. And I just feel her knees like pounding underneath my butt as I'm like clutching to her chest. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and um, like she's just going round and round and round and I'm holding on for dear life and from there it's so funny because she finally just decided to stop and I put my feet on the ground <laughs> and I just stood there shaking <laughs> and I didn't even grab the horse I just walked to the arena no you did the horse cannon. I so did I just like walked out the arena with like my knees shaking and everything like oh, that so oh my gosh um, <laughs> I'll never forget that moment. But yeah, she rode up through college and, you know, she showed on the A circuit and jumped and everything like that, you know, did a lot of the jumpers. And, but for me, you know, my parents didn't really support me at a certain extent, you know, they got to be sort of like lower middle class where they did, they were able to pay for like one lesson a week for me. And I'd like work for the other one or something like that. And, um, at some point they just kind of like, let me loose. Cause you know, I'll never forget I had made a deal with my mom and I said, Hey mom, like, I really want to be able to go up higher in pony club. I really want to like, you know, go out and and really like make something of myself. Can I lease a horse? And they go, yeah, you can lease a horse. If you get a a 3.0 or higher in school, I got a 4.2 GPA because I was taking college classes at night. And when I asked my parents if I could lease a horse, they said, sorry, no, we don't have the money. Mm. And so at that point, I basically said middle finger to you all, middle (laughs) finger to anything that anybody wants me to do. And they couldn't get me to go to school. They couldn't get me to do anything they wanted to the point that like, I mean, I, I was a bad kid, but like not really a bad, I just wanted to ride, you know? So like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't come home. And I mean, my, the school that I was going to, it was pretty cool because you could submit all of your, your schoolwork online. Which meant to me, I was like, why the hell do I have to go to school yeah. if I can just do all the work online? Right. You know, so I'd still get in trouble, but like they had zero control of me, you know, which, you know, mm-hmm. start, sparked a lot of stuff. And they thought I was doing all these bad things and selling drugs and all kinds of stuff, sure. you know, but, but literally all I was doing is I'd be sleeping in the hayloft at the barn <laughs> and, um, and just right on everything. I got a job and 
know, would, would do stuff here and there, clean people's stalls and whatever I needed. And um, I was able to just ride anything that had four hooves on it. I was, you know, at this really rundown back of the woods barn that's like, you see every type of horsemanship that you wish you didn't see there, yeah. but I didn't care because I, yep. I got to ride. And, and then I rescued a horse and, and I really just sort of like took off from there all I wanted to do was ride and I was willing to do um, literally anything to be able to do it. At that point in your life, what were some of your like goals or dreams as far as you were riding? My dreams were always, I wanted to be the first black woman to jump in the Olympics. I just thought that would be the coolest mm-hmm. thing because I always loved to jump and I love to jump big. And I was just, I mean, there's no real way to fly other than being on a horse's back. Like having that feeling is amazing. So I had, it was that. And then I always wanted to have a program that gets inner city youth off the streets and onto horses because during that time in my teenage years, I did a lot of work for different nonprofits that dealt with horses and inner city kids. And the one thing that I noticed is as I was working for these different places and teaching, you know, I was either dealing with people that didn't know ass in from face of horses, Mm -hmm. but, you know, had really good intentions or like would just do the wrong things. You know, I'd see so many problems and these programs would pop up and, you know, they couldn't keep up funding or they couldn't have horses, just all these different reasons why they weren't sustainable and they didn't work. And, you know, I even, I ran um, the city of Oakland's horsemanship day camp at one point, you know, and watch that sort of like rise and fall. And I just knew from there, I was like, all of these things that people are doing wrong with this. I was like, I can take all of this stuff. And I'm one of those people where I try to learn from mistakes personally, like with and everything in life because I do everything in my power to avoid pain, whether mm-hmm. physical or mental, you know, mm-hmm. I just don't like messing up. So I just knew that like, that was going to be my calling, but I definitely didn't think that that's something I would do until I was like retired because it takes so much money and time. So, you know, I was like, ah, if I have my little ranch, then I'll definitely have a little program going and help a couple kids and it'll be seriously really cool, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Tell me a little bit about Mulatto Meadows and kind of like how that got started and kind of like the story behind it. Yeah. Well, the first thing I always like to answer about my ranch is the biggest question I get is why is my name Mulatto Meadows? And why did I choose that name? When, you know, if you, if you know anything about our history, Mulatto is generally a term that's very derogatory. Mm. Um, And so people are like, why in the hell would you name your ranch that? That's awful. Mm. And I always like to tell the people the story that's, you know, my, my grandmother, her grandfather was born in Spanish Morocco and she was the most important person in my life before she passed. And I used to love her stories and on history and our family and everything like that. And so my grandfather that was a term that they used to, to harm him, to call him, to describe him as a light-skinned black man. Hmm. And I, I noticed like how hurtful that word was when used in that context. But it was always so strange to me that I would then also hear my grandmother use that word as sort of a term of endearment. Hmm. So just in life, she would be, you know, describe herself as a mulatto woman or what we are as light skinned black women. And she'd turn something that was meant to be ugly and hateful and awful into something that was meant to describe something that was beautiful. Wow. And so I really took that. Um, and I was just like, wow, you know, we as a black people 
we go through so much shit, honestly. And, mm. you know, we are so good at taking the crap and turning it into something that is worthwhile and beautiful, not just for us, but for the entire world. I mean, look, the slave owners, they gave us scraps. They gave us the garbage that they wanted to throw away. And what did we do? We turned it into soul food. Soul food is something that's eaten all over the world. Everybody loves soul food in all different cultures. You know, we take the, the hate and the crime and the death and destructions that happens on our streets and we turn it that all of that into something that is beautiful in the form of art and music that again the entire world loves to bite off our culture mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. so for me it's just as a as a business saying that the term mulatto outside of its derogatory form, form is used to describe something that is light skin that is a mix i thought what a better word and what a better meaning to describe my my ranch since I am a light skinned woman love unlike most people that love the green lush hills after the rain I love the way that the hills on the ranch look in the fall where you have that deep you know really gorgeous brown dried grass color color that just waves in the wind you know mm -hmm. I think it's beautiful and then also I'm an interesting mix of disciplines um, I'm one right, of the few people yeah. that I, I ride in both I'm both western and English and then what I've made my living doing for the past years is is actually taking you know cheap piece of crap craigslist horses that nobody wants and i turn them into really expensive nice just your husband safe horses that can yeah. have a, a a life again so i'm like you know i'm a mix of everything this is the best way to describe what my ranch is so that's really why i chose my name and um from there you know this this program my program, I, I started this program actually probably like six or seven years ago. And um, thing that I just felt really strongly about that, you know, here I am and I teach and I teach for-profit lessons and I teach for-profit summer camp. And it really struck me that, I mean, <laughs> there was never any, any kid that looked like me. There were never any kids in my camp that were anything but white, honestly. And so what I would do at the end of the summer after I had like made my, my money for that year is I would do one or two sessions where I would collab with different nonprofit organizations in the Bay Area, and I would get them to bring their inner city kids out to the ranch to get to experience the same camp that the rich kids got to experience. So we'd always have fun like that. And that was just something that I do out of my own pocket. You know, I just, it's something that I felt passionately about and that I, I would do, but I never really thought that like, I would be able to do more than that until, like I said, I'm old and hopefully rich and retired, you know, but, um, going to the protest, um, that attention, really allowed me to take a program that was just like something that I would do, mm -hmm. you know, with my extra money and my spare time and turn it into something much larger where I could impact a whole heck of a lot more people and turn away from a lot of the for-profit stuff that I was doing yeah. with more focus on, on community. So it's been a phenomenal journey. Honestly. Wow. Yeah, that is so cool. And that's like, it. honestly, hearing the story behind the name, it's like so perfect. It's so, mm -hmm. it's like describes it so perfectly. Um, yeah, and, then, and I'm not here to make you comfortable. And you know, so many people mm -hmm. are very uncomfortable with the name or saying the name. And I'm like, yeah. I'm not here to fit into your box. I'm not here to make you feel comfortable or to be digestible for you, which mm -hmm. has definitely been a hard barrier with being one of the only black people around, you know, is like... Sure. <laughs> and being the one that is the light skinned one that speaks well and, you know, people feel like they can ask you and you're like representative of, of everyone, you know, sure. I'm not here to make you feel comfortable. Yeah.
Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I have a question for you listening because I honestly used to dread having to get prescriptions filled for my animals. Does the idea of having to re-up your prescriptions give you anxiety? I used to be the same way, but then I started shopping at FarmVet. They make it so easy to get my prescriptions filled. All I have to do is order online and they do the rest. On top of making your prescription buying hassle-free, they also have a very knowledgeable staff that I can bounce things off of when I'm questioning a supplement my horse is currently using or considering trying something new. Plus, I love how easy it is to set up and manage auto shipments, so I know my horses always have what they need when they need it. Whether you're shopping online or over the phone, which I've also done all the time because it's super quick, you'll get free shipping on all of your orders over $79. Thinking about giving them a try? You can use my code MyEquestrianStyle to get 10% off your first order. Check out FarmVet at farmvet.com. That's F-A-R-M-V-E-T dot com. Again, that is 10% off your order by using code MyEquestrianStyle. Some restrictions do apply, like prescriptions and price-protected brands, so make sure you see store for details. Thank you so much, FarmVet. All right, let's get back to the episode. So tell me a little bit more about Humble, maybe the the reason behind the name and then kind of the, because be, because you also do Humble in the city and then Humble on the on your ranch too. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, Humble is just the name of, you know, all the nonprofit work that we do. It's just kind of like all encompassing. I chose the name Humble because horses are humbling. Everything about mm-hmm. them. It, it is humbling, you know? So I just thought that would be like the coolest thing to be able to call our program. And what we do here is we use horses as a medium to inspire positivity in our communities. And it's, um, it's really a complicated, simple model. <laughs> we do any and everything that encompasses using horses as a medium to inspire positivity because it, it just, it means so many different things. And we've worked on so many cool projects. So for instance, out in the the humble in the city stuff that we do this last the last three or four years actually i work in collaboration with san francisco police department and mercy housing as well as the uh, boys and girls club in the sunnydale district um, for those of you who don't know sunnydale in san francisco is one of the last major housing projects um, here in northern california so it is the poorest of the poor um, sort of what what you think about my sister actually works to police that community there and is really big on, again, us policing our own communities and and creating positive relationships to then, you know, impact and change everything. Mm -hmm. So what we do there is every year they have a Halloween block party and with a different sort of theme. And we also just use horses as incentives. So like we've done cleanup days there. Normally they have a really hard time getting people to come out of their houses and to engage in things like that. Magically, when I trailer my horses in and we say, hey, if you clean up a whole bag of garbage, anybody that does can come and engage with the horses. You should see how many people are out there scavenging through the dirt and being like, oh man, I need some more garbage. You know what I mean? So um, it it really becomes an amazing tool to open people up. So for Halloween, um, one year we did the Headless Horseman. Last year, it was uh, Wakanda theme. So the Black Panther. And I'm sitting there going, how in the heck am I supposed to come up with a Wakanda theme costume? Like what? (laughs) I'm like, I'm just a horse person. And then I thought about, I was like, oh, I went to Oakland School for the Arts. And I remembered when I was at school there, like, we had a fashion design department as well as like, um, you know, theater and, and just, yeah. you know, all of these, these different productions 
um, sort of things, uh, emphasis, they call them. And so I called up my old school and I said, hey, I think this could be a really cool way to collaborate. So I invited those departments out and we had the, all of the kids out and they got to measure the horses. They got to like come out and see them. And then basically through Zoom, the kids came up with all of these elaborate Afrocentric designs. And me and my sister got to sit through and pick the designs that we thought were the best. And then the entire school went and they actually made these elaborate costumes um, for us oh. and for, for the horses. And so SFPD then went and actually blocked off like an entire street there in the Sunnydale. And I brought out my big living quarter trailer and it was literally like a Hollywood movie set. Like the kids wow. were there, they were grooming and painting and prepping the horses. And, you know, then like they're literally, they're, they're dressing us. It was amazing. And so you should see these beautiful, beautiful costumes. We literally look like we should have been in the movie. And then we, wow. you know, went and paraded down the street for the community. And it was awesome, you know, because then again, horses, I, I never thought that was a way that we could use horses to inspire your positivity, but we became, we became a canvas. So now totally. these young artists were able to show off their work. This year we did a Michael Jackson flash mob thriller um, sort oh, of thing. So, you know, so we fun. were all zombies and like we actually like linked up with another dance conservatory. So we had the kids in the community, like all of these people dressed up and then like we, we flash mobbed in in the Sunnydale and all of the dancers did the thriller dance. I mean, oh, it was awesome. That's amazing. So, so we have so much fun. I'll be heading out now. We're doing wonky donkey um, Wednesdays right now. So I have a, a wild BLM borough that we have here named Rita. And I really, really love the little bits, you know, especially the ones that are kind of mm -hmm. too small to engage. So yeah. we're going to be popping up at some different locations. And my daughter's favorite book is actually the wonky donkey. So we'll bring Rita into the community. <laughs> and it. we actually sit and, and do an interactive reading with the little tiny tots um, to really just help the foster the the thought that you know i hey i want to be around horses and stuff like that so that's what we do with humble in the city um and then what we do here on the ranch on our ranch here that was really the hard piece because as this started to get bigger it went from a small program that mm -hmm. i had to basically like okay well i've got like 10 lesson courses and you know as a person that teaches lessons i if you have a six or seven hundred person long wait list there ain't mm -hmm. no way in hell you yeah. would ever, I mean, like there's, there's no way. And so like, I just realized very quickly with the amount of people and things that were interested, how unsustainable it would be to continue with my normal, what I was doing as an eight week riding program. So it really right. gave like 10 kids at a time, a really awesome opportunity to like learn the, all the fundamentals about horses. And, you know, I was thinking maybe like 10% of the kids would want to move on. So we have what's called an equestrian collective where those kids could move on to go work with other trainers that would then donate their nice. time, you know? Yeah. So, but then the problem became is, holy crap, all of the kids want to move forward. Everybody <laughs> sure. is super passionate yeah. and working hard. So I was like, what do, what do I do? You know, I'm basically like showing kids this world and, and then like, they're going to run into the exact same barrier and issue that I have, that it's expensive, that, you know, it's not feasible to do, you know, at all. Right. So that's when I realized that it's like, Hey, the money is not there. I can't generate enough money and donations don't cover it. So what am I going to do? And then I realized the best piece of advice that I I always give other people when they say like, what can I do is I'm just like, stay in your lane, just stay in your own damn lane and mm -hmm. do what you like to do and do what you're good at and, and try to make a difference. And then I realized that I needed to take my own advice. 
-hmm. And it's like, I'm trying to be Brianna, the CEO and Brianna, all of this sort of things. When all I need to do is run my horse, like deal with my horses and run my ranch. And I realized that there's how many nonprofits throughout the Bay area that deal with all of the populations of inner city youth and families that I want to deal with. So instead of running my own program and trying to build infrastructure and bring in people, you know, and have all this money to hire. Instead, I realized all I had to do is collaborate with all of the beautiful people that are in my community already. So now what our program looks like is I invite any nonprofit that in, that uh, or any program that impacts our communities, they can come and run their programming at our ranch. And then we simply add horses to it. So for instance, one of our largest partners is East Bay Agency for Children. They serve 9,000 families throughout the East Bay. They have a huge trauma therapy program. So one class they may teach here is have their therapy classes. Well, they have their therapists that come. They have all of their staff. You know, they have grant writers there. So they're actually able to, you know, go just put our logo on their grant proposal that their grant writer writes. They get the funding to come out. And then, hey, if they're talking about, they have kids with PTSD and all of this stuff and they're talking about communication, all I have to do is sit down with my program manager and their staff and say, oh, you guys are talking about communication. How about we do an exercise of join up to really help these kids understand what it means, what body language means, how to exist within the herd. And doing it like that means that my staff can stay the same. You know, my horses aren't, you know, overutilized and it becomes a way for me to actually hit so many different industries that are out there. It gives me a way to what I realized is what I'm actually doing here is giving horses a new mainstream purpose. And that is what I realized was the key part. Because for the first time in United States history now, horses no longer have a mainstream purpose, meaning they're not used for war, they're not used for travel, and they're not used for farming. So they're not used for anything here except for sport. If we don't see horses have a new purpose, nobody cares about them, which means we don't have land to support them. There's no funding to support them. When I come and I go to a horse place, you know, or in, talk to anybody that's in the horse world and I tell them that my operating budget is $50,000 a month, they squeal and be like, oh God, no, that's, that's, how is that possible? That is so not sustainable. And then I realized when I went outside of the horse community, because we know that there actually is no profit generated. There is no revenue generated in the horse community. It all comes from outside in. When I went to other nonprofits and saw other industries, that is nothing. That's like the smallest of the small, small that's business. True. And that's, and that's when I realized that I was, I was onto something right there, you know, is giving horses a new mainstream purpose. And then also realizing that I can't put the cart in front of the horse. I can ask all day for donations to help a couple of kids. That's not fixing the problem. That's slapping a Band-Aid on an issue and not really dealing with why there's a flesh right there. And so I realized the barriers that we face in our community, um, we have a couple. So how I had to figure out how we sustainably keep agriculture and horses within the confines of the cities to take the cost down to make these programs more feasible. So what I'm actually really doing here on the ranch, the big thing is figuring out that issue, which I have. So the biggest barriers we face in the city is dealing with hay. Hay prices are ridiculously expensive. Hay brokers charge us out of the ass because they have to, you know, ship it here. And then we have to ship it often because most places can't store a lot of hay. Um, we don't have access to grazing as much as we like most of the time. Um, lots of horses are stacked in the waste. So, and then you also have to pay delivery on your head. That's one. And two, unlike other places that can spread their manure, 
or, you know, just leave it on a pile to decompose. We cannot do that within the confines of the city. So it costs thousands of dollars a month for us to have a, companies come in and actually we have to pay to dispose of all of our manure, which means that our cost of care here and even lessons is ridiculously high. So what I did to combat those programs is me and my husband actually came up with a fodder system. So we're growing 80% of our horses feed here on our properties. And that is taking our cost, our hay cost down by a third. And then I actually linked up with a biotech company that's um, pioneering a new biodigester. So all of the manure on the property is going to be going into this biodigester and it's going to be digested and turned into sustainable biofuel that runs the whole property. So the big thing that I'm doing here is actually creating a blueprint that we can then pass on to other programs that are inner city programs that are like this throughout the country. So we can show you how to sustainably keep the horses while still minding our model that we believe in, which is horses need to always have friendship, fodder, and freedom. Take your cost down to make it actually important and to show the outside world, because I'm sorry, screw the horse community, because none of the, the money is there and coming really to help programs like these but to figure out how to make these programs sustainable so that we can have the impact that we want to have and truly make changes. Tell me about an area of the industry that you're super passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about. Well, lately I've kind of been like, now that I've sort of, I think made it to what I perceive as the top of the industry, Uh it has made me feel like I don't want to be a part of this industry. Hmm. That does not mean that I don't want to be a part of horses. It's just as the industry exists right now, I don't really have much desire to be a part of it, especially now that I figured out again, that like this does not generate revenue. It does not really generate income. It's like not, you can't sustainably live off of this. And if I can't figure out with at the time, you know, where I'm at right now, if I'm at the top of this industry doing the work that I'm doing, and I have basically clout throughout, not just the horse industry, but the world. And I can't figure out how to do it without, Mm -hmm. without, you know, most of the money that I get coming in is because I generated on the four profit and put it back into this stuff. Not because anybody has really stepped up to to give much of anything to help us work. You know, it's like, I definitely believe that I, my place is not to be a part of this industry, but to almost like go my own path to create a difference because I don't really think there's a way to do it within the industry as it is right now. So, but if I was going to generically answer your question, a part of the industry that I'm passionate about is um, getting back to a basis of horsemanship. As I said in previously, I have everything that I do is based on my three F belief, and that's friendship, fodder, and freedom. And I really believe that without those three things, we shouldn't we shouldn't really be asking horses to do anything. Or mm-hmm. I mean, we do, but like we can't really expect them to be, you know, amazing for us if we're not just treating them with what with the bare basics that they need. And I feel like we as humans are so good at just taking and taking what we want and using that we just allow, we just make it okay to like treat things in not the most ideal manner, you know? So for me, the reason why it took us so long to find a facility that I was okay with is because I believe that my horses should have free access to pasture, you know, and again, in the confines of the city, it's ridiculously hard to find that, you know, but now my horses run 
on like 80 acres, you know, at nighttime and they come in during the day, they always have free access to grazing. They always have free access to forage. Um, and then I allow them to live together as well because they are herd animals and it can be so hard for them to, you know, like our show horses that are never really allowed to touch each other outside of being through a, a wall, you know, or a stall. It's, um, I think definitely, <laughs> can be really hard on them. And, you know, some people just kind of like shrug their shoulders and be like, it is mm-hmm. what it is. But right now I have a, a great example of that. Any of you guys um, that follow me on Instagram will see that I have this horse named Ivan and he's um, this big, beautiful, like 17.3 KWPN gelding. And, you know, he's got a passport from the Czech Republic. He's gorgeous, big, gorgeous mover, gorgeous jump, everything. But he's like damn near suicidal. There is nothing really <laughs> wrong with him. <laughs> there's nothing really wrong with him, but like he, he was like basically in ketosis and they couldn't get him to eat. I mean, I remember walking wow. in the barn he was at and he had like three different buckets of grain in front of him, pellets, like every different type of grain you can think of different types of hay. And like, he wouldn't eat it. He would just walk up to you and be like, Hey there human. And I was like, Oh, Hey there mm. Ivan. And he loved his people. And he was just, you would like breathe into him because that's, that's one thing that I love about horses is I always walk up to them and they breathe you their, their breath of life. Basically mm-hmm. that's how horses breed each other. They breathe into each other's nose and they smell what is their existence. And when you do that with that horse, he smelled like death. He is, his insides were like literally in ketosis and rotting wow. and they had so many issues with him and like the owners and the facility was great. They were doing everything that they could, all the vet care, all the different feeds, trying all the different things for this horse. And he just, you know, he'd colic, he'd choke, he'd all of these things. And, you know, I remember being there one day and, you know, just as nobody was looking, I was like, I haltered him and I took him out of stall and I found that one little piece of patch of grass that was there on this property. And he put his head down and he started eating. And I was like, "Mm, I, I, you know, I was, I don't know if anything's actually wrong with this horse outside of the mental side of things. And so after a year of that, they couldn't get him better. So they actually gave him to me for a dollar. And so I took him home and when I got him home, I didn't know if he'd actually live past the first week he was there. Cause when he stepped off, he was just in such awful shape. I was like, and with the stress of trailering, I just kind of kept sticking my head out and being like, Oh, well, he's still alive. He's still alive, Mm -hmm. you know? And, um, here we are, this is maybe like three or four months later, he's put on probably 500 pounds and he's, he's, you know, barefoot and happy. And he's still, you know, with all that muscle atrophy, it takes a long time to bring it back. But I mean, if you look at my Insta, he's, he's doing and moving along and people are like, Oh my God, what'd you feed him? What'd you do? And I was like, Three F's, friendship, fodder, and freedom. He's not on any supplements. I'm not injecting him. I'm not doing anything. He's just, I'm just allowing him to like the bare minimal basic of what horses really need. And magically, all of those issues that he had are no longer an issue. That's incredible. That is so cool. And obviously, I mean, like what you were saying, there's a big part of you that I feel like will always be around horses and like that you have your ranch and things like that with what you're doing now, knowing kind of how you feel and what you've learned about the industry, where do you feel like your future lies as far as something that you can do moving forward that you feel like is sustainable? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I can do is just making sure that this, this ranch runs well. So I'm doing everything within my power to actually make this something that is real jobs for people, you know? So it's something that has made me move 
a lot slower because I'm paying sustainable wages. I have workers comp. I'm, I have full insurance and retirement and everything for my staff that are here. I'm, you know, um, really trying to turn this into a business that actually generates revenue. I think that's very important. So I am a nonprofit. I am what we call a fiscally sponsored project. So what that means is I'm a for-profit business that encompasses um, mostly nonprofit work. So okay. I'm able to make both for-profit money as well as take donations. And you know, if donations don't come in, then my for-profit business can sort of rise to the task to make sure that none of this ever goes away. But if I can show how to sustainably keep horses within the confines of the city, then guess what? This becomes a blueprint that I can now pass on and help all the other programs in the, the country that are struggling right now. And then that to me is how we can really impact DEI and make change in the industry. And for me, I have no desire to follow the confines of the industry any mm -hmm. longer, you know? So there's mm -hmm. lots of unwritten rules and you do and you don't do this. And you know how it goes. I mean, this is actually yep. the first time in my life that I feel like I can have a big mouth. You know, if I don't like something, I used to, you, you know how it is. You can't say anything. You can't mm -hmm. do anything because you'll get burned and people mm -hmm. won't take you and you can't ride with so-and-so. And honestly, I say middle finger to all that crap now. I don't mm -hmm. care. I truly, truly don't care, you know, and I think where my place is going to be is, like I said, to, to really give horses a new mainstream purpose. And if we can do that, then I will be bringing in revenue into the industry that it, it really doesn't have, you know, because I'll be generating it from the within. And so I hope, too, that at some point, um, you know, when I have a little bit more bandwidth, I can also sort of change the, the, the jumping scene a little bit. You know, there's mm -hmm. so many industries on the Western side of things that are doing really, really well because they're so accessible to people, you know? Sure. So it's just like, why has barrel racing gotten so popular? Why has roping gotten so popular over the last years? Because it's something that is attainable for everyone that you can practice with. And one sport that I truly love and that I still compete in is trail trials. And uh, going from something high-paced like jumping to being like, oh, I compete in trail trials is something I never thought I would really say. But it's the one sport for me that I truly believe is really fair because it doesn't matter if you have an $80,000 horse. It doesn't matter, mm -hmm. you know, if you have a trainer that's riding your horse 24-7, you know. You're not going to win when you get out there if you don't have a connection with your animal. And right. so I definitely am hoping that moving forward, um, I can sort of create my, my own thing, even if it's just on a schooling, really fun basis where people actually have a chance. You know, I had a volunteer that came from a very, very big show barn and she competes like at the top of the sport. And I love this girl because, you know, even though she's at the top of the sport and she has like four super expensive horses and she competes and wins, she was here with me every Wednesday, you know, and volunteering because she wants to see the industry better. And the funny thing is, is we got to sort of talking about how important showing and winning is to her. And then I just said, oh, so you think because you win, you're the best. And she was like, well, if I win, I am the best. And I was like, okay, well, let me ask you this. Who's a better rider, me or you? And she goes, of course you. Mm -hmm. And I said, who's a better trainer, me or you? And she's like, oh my God, of course you, you do amazing things. And so I said, okay, now if I stepped in the show ring with you, who would win, me or you? And she's like, me. Mm -hmm. And I said, why? Because you have access to very expensive, well-bred horses and trainers that school your horses, even though you only ride once a week, you know? So I'm mm -hmm. like, is it really a show of your horsemanship? Does that really mean that you're the best? Or does that mean that you have more money than me? Hmm. And the look on her face was like, yeah. wow. 
And I'm like, yeah. And that is exactly why I, I was like, I don't really have much desire to do it anymore. Yeah. I think that that, I mean, I think that that's such a good point and it's such a big part of our industry and you can see where it's headed if those changes aren't going to be made. Um, it won't be made. I mean, yeah. in the basis of all of these sports, like how would it ever be feasible? Horses are always going to be expensive, you know? Right. And there's not really much reward for doing the right thing in most of our industries, whether it's Western or yeah. or English, you know yeah. what I mean? So, I mean, that's why I like looking at how things are and like getting to look at so many different sports in the horse world. I was just kind of like, man, I don't, no, I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't, yeah. I, I will enjoy my horses and I will make my difference, but it will definitely not be on the, the sport side of things as, mm -hmm. as it is right now. Right. Right. How can someone who fought, who has been following you or listening to this episode, how could they best support you and uh, all the things that you're doing right now? You know, that's a very, very good question. And I don't really know how to answer that, you know, because at the end of the day, we can always use donations and money. Mm -hmm. Money is a thing, but I have kind of learned to like, stop even looking for money in the horse world because it ain't there. You know, so I'd like to say, go online and donate to our cause on our website. But I mean, mm -hmm. the horse industry doesn't really give you much, but I mean, if you don't have a pot to piss in. So I, my focus really isn't on the horse industry right now. Um, you know, it's going more towards big corporations and everything like that. So, I mean, how can people help? I'd say just follow along with our journey, mm -hmm. you know, and, and see what you like and don't like. And, you know, the thing is, is I feel like as people sort of see stories like Ivan's as people sort of see some of the horses that we brought back from nothing yeah. and from these different situations, it's, it's education. It's like, you know, I'm never going to tell somebody that what they do is right or wrong, but like, I'm just going to do what I do. And then usually when I have people around and see what I do, it makes them start questioning things mm -hmm. and things are going to change or people are going to want to do things different when questions start arising. Exactly. So I, like I said, I'm not making any claims or warranties to anything. I'm just going to do what I do. I'm going to treat my horses well. I'm going to try to make a difference and, you know, follow along and watch all the different things that we do. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Brianna, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story and your insight. I think that what you're doing is incredible and so needed, whether the industry thinks they need it or not. I appreciate all of the the drive and the bravery and the candidness that you've had with me. And I know I love watching your journey and I hope others uh, continue to watch and follow along too. No, thank you so much for having me. I love um, that we're able to have all of these conversations um, now and it's, it's sparking more and more of them, you know, one big thing about all of this is like, look, if you're in a dark room, what I started trying to do at first and being like, Hey, I'm going to be the light and I'm going to try to raise my candle above my head and illuminate this whole room. And I, like I said, I realized that that's pretty stupid, but what I can do is if people are in the room with me holding you know, candles that aren't lit, I can reach to the person to the right of me and light up their candle. And then it just sort of spreads from there, you know? So that's what I truly hope people can take from this and, you know, just pass on information and pass on the care, you know, the care to, to make change, to learn more, you know, that's really all we can all do. And it really does make a difference. Yeah. I love that analogy. Well, Brianna, I wish you all the best. And I am still so jealous that you're 
riding on your horse. I really <laughs> genuinely think I need to figure out a mic situation and start doing my interviews from horseback because I just feel like that would make so much more sense. Hey, AirPods are real in these little candle bags. You just shove your phone right? on in there. Oh my God. I run my mouth all the time <laughs> as I'm checking these fence lines. <laughs> I love it. Well, thanks, Brianna. Have a good one. All right. You too. Thank you. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.